Well, good morning, Todd. Good morning. Good morning. I missed that. I was listening to one of our older episodes and it literally popped up that I was like, oh my God, that's in my head all the time now, every morning. And I've lost it. So thank you for bringing it back. Well, now it's, it's back. back. It's back in business and ain't it grand. Back in business and ain't it grand. <laughs> Let's do this whole intro so and sing it. How, how are you doing? What have you been up to this week, my dear? Well, you know, we are in full swing of recording season two. So we had another interview with Lair Torrent. That was wonderful. Always invigorating. So good. He, you know, always pushes my thought process and everything to continue on this kind of journey of focusing on inner child, on basically treating yourself appropriately. We got to dive into a lot of other topics we didn't get to talk to about before. And then as per usual, this podcast just is the gift that keeps on giving. Kay Tuckerman, who we talked to as well, invited us to go to a film screening in New York City. Mm-hmm. The, well, yeah, it was very, very fancy. We got invitations from the Australian, Australian consulate. consulate, which is actually is at the Australian consulate slash embassy. So I wow. am super excited going up. You're the, going, yes, I'm so, going I'm in a couple so of days. So I am really excited about that. And I asked her yesterday what I should wear. And she said, anything that makes you happy and a champagne accessory. So I did not know what that, I'm just going to go with full gold glitter. I think she meant anything that looks good with a champagne accessory. I don't even know. I'm just like, okay, so do I bring champagne? And she's like, well, I'm sure there'll be champagne there, but you know, whatever works. (laughs) She's just, I'm not used to this stuff. Fierce, whatever you wear, it's going to be great. (laughs) And yeah, it's going to be great because it's a short film festival. Yes, yes. So. And very female focused. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be fabulous. You're going to have a great yeah, time. I'm really excited. Say hello to the Big Apple for me. And I, I will. And I feel bad that all the people that we've interviewed in New York said I would come see, but I'm going to be there like in and out. So I'm sorry, guys. I'll be back. I promise. So what have you been up to? Oh, well, it was my 40th birthday on 13th. So that's been kind of... Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, made it. it. <laughs> no, it's... I had a full week of celebration. Literally Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I had something going on for my birthday because I have an amazing humans in my life. But I had the big party on Saturday at this laser tag place where we rented out the place. And you want to see a bunch of late 30, early 40 somethings. I did not know so many of my friends are assassins. Yes, they've been waiting like, for this. Just full on running through this maze, shooting people. It was so much fun. And you got to get, I didn't realize when you do laser tag, you're trying to get to their base yeah, yeah, yeah. to destroy their base. Mm. Uh, and how long into laser tag did it take you to figure that out? Oh, well, no, they tell you before you go in, but I forgot that that was the whole point. I thought you just shoot each other, but there is a point you're, they're guarding a base the year, you know? So I was on the winning team. The second game we played the first game, we didn't win, but the second, it was really, cause I think once I learned how to use the the, The the laser, the weapon. (laughs) (laughs) So that was cool. And at the laser tech place, they also have an arcade. Nice. So we were all playing like, you know, Mrs. Pac-Man and air hockey. And it was just such a great fun. Just we, and everybody said, God, I felt like a kid again. It was really fun. I'm really sad. I missed it. That's what we've been up to, but I'm really, really excited about the guests today. Who do we have on today? Today we have on the show, Johnny Shio, who was just so 
open and amazing. And we, we dove into some intense, but it just has the craziest story. Like just like the, his whole story is amazing. And I'm really excited for people to hear it and how he learned from it and grew from it. And we can all learn a lot from this episode. So I'll go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about Johnny. Johnny Shia was born in Southern Louisiana. He has been a paralegal for 41 years and is called Los Angeles home for the past 17. He began his sober journey in 1990 and has been sober for nearly two years now. He's currently writing a book with a working title of Loving Then Leaving the Goat, detailing his life story, including his marriage and divorce to an Olympic legend. In it, he discusses his sober journey, overcoming extraordinary challenges, then finding himself again at 61 years old as a man with a new set of rules that guide his thoughts and actions. So without further ado, we give you Johnny Shio. Good morning, Johnny. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. We're so happy to have you on the program. Really, really honored. This is an honor. Thank you so much for doing this. We're all in different locations. I'm actually in Joshua Tree. And Laura, you're in Charleston. And Johnny, you're in New Orleans. Yes, I'm in Louisiana. Yes. Well, we just learned it's Lafayette. Oh, goodness. Okay, it's different. It's, <laughs> yes, it's it's Lafayette, yeah, it Louisiana. Is, it's very different. It's near Texas, okay? <laughs> so, Johnny, we're just going to jump right in here. So, you were one of 10 children growing up. And what was your childhood like in Louisiana? And how did... You handle being part of such a large family. You were also raised Catholic, so did that impact your upbringing at all? Absolutely. My parents had 10 children in 13 years. We are now down to seven. And we were born in a little town called Crowley, Louisiana. It's a southern Louisiana prairie country. And, you know, growing up, everyone in my hometown, and that's a general statement, many families in my hometown had large families. Uh, It was the 50s. It was the 60s. It was after the war. It was the baby boomer generation. And I grew up in a very large family. I knew nothing different. My brothers and sisters, the placement was three boys, three girls, me, then three girls. So I grew up in an environment of women. And I'm so fortunate of my placement. But it was a busy household. It was, you know, unstructured guidance. There was a lot going on. And it was just a lot of fun. I remember just having a lot of fun growing up. Yeah. So what was the best part about being sandwiched between all those ladies? Hand-me-downs. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I was saying, did they dress you up or did you my, dress yourself yes, up? Yes. My mother said I did not have quite a, a chance. She said there was just no <laughs> chance, you know. And she knew that I was special at a very young age, even before I knew. Oh, absolutely. When I told her that I was gay, she said, you know, Johnny, the proclivity was always there. I will never (laughs) forget that sentence. And my parents were were quite liberal. She said, do you think I love you any less? And I said, no, because I did come out later in life. I was 30. And it was a magical childhood. You know, for me, when I look back, yes, it was... You know, a country family, very big. All of us very, my parents were very beautiful people. And they just had a bunch of good looking Oh, yeah, that's for sure. I have a testament to that right now, looking at you. It worked out. (laughs) No, but they did. They did. Well, speaking of growing up in Louisiana, where, you know, there's a lot of other big families, also kind of a little bit of a, say, reputation, kind of like Charleston, for drinking a little bit. 
So, you know, we know that you did start drinking kind of at an early age. Can you explain to us what the circumstances were around that and kind of sure. if that was sure. when any problems you had with alcohol began? Well, first off, let me premise this whole podcast with I hope that my experiences and story can help someone who's listening about what I experienced and how I eventually persevered and redeemed myself for myself. But yes, Louisiana has a reputation of, you know, they work hard and they play hard. And my father was an alcoholic. And as we all know, the disease progresses. But he was from Mobile, Alabama, and was drafted by the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1948 and wasn't quite good enough. So they sent him down to a double-A team within the Brooklyn Dodger Association, and that team happened to be in Crowley, Louisiana. And that's where my mother lived. Oh. And he never left. Wow. (laughs) But there was just a lot of frivolity and... Mardi Gras and festivals and large family gatherings. And of course, alcohol was involved. My first drink, my first drunk was 11. I was 11 years old. And the circumstances around that was a city celebration for a native who became governor of the state of Louisiana and was 1972. I remember what I drank. I remember where I was. I remember how I felt. And it was this release. It was that feeling of, oh my God, this is the answer. Now, mind you, I was 11. So there was no consequence, as I recall, to that experience. There was just no consequence. Did did adults know you were drinking? I, I don't remember. I absolutely don't remember. But I would remember if I were punished or scolded, but I do not remember. I just remember the feeling of release. Oh, my God, here's the answer for whatever question I was questioning. But it was definitely an answer. Yeah, it definitely sounded like you were a pretty deep 11-year-old for... (laughs) And so, yes, and so that's where I began my journey of using drugs and alcohol. I was quite young. When did you realize that you had an issue with it? And how did you get sober the first time? I was 23 when every time I drank, I started crying. And then actually what preceded that was I would drink, take my clothes off in public, and then cry. I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't have a lot of dates when you do that. So part of my story is, yep, I drank, stripped, and cried in public. And (laughs) it's funny now, I was very confused. It wasn't working for me anymore, and I couldn't stop. And I knew that I had a problem when I began asking others, do you think I have a problem? That's when I knew I had a problem. And I didn't get sober until 1990. I was 29 years old. And I had just come out of the closet, and I was drinking. And it was suggested that I seek therapy, and I did. And this therapist helped me get sober and come out as a proud 
gay men during the AIDS epidemic. So it was a very eventful time. Do you think you were drinking because you were closeted? Do you think that that like added? I think that had something to do with it. I think my alcoholism may have kept me alive during the early 1980s of not coming out. Wow. So you felt that your alcoholism might have kept you alive. That's yes. My alcoholism just may have kept me alive because I was an open border. I had no boundaries. I was experimenting. I had no idea what I was doing or the consequences of those actions. So my drinking and using, I felt, as I look back on it, kept me alive and HIV negative and you know, I got to survive that time. So you think that if you had come out earlier instead of using alcohol to substitute maybe that, you would have... I haven't yeah, the slightest maybe, you know. idea what would have happened. But I can tell you this, knowing myself and knowing what I was like back then, it could have been highly possible that I wouldn't be here talking to you today. Well, you know, there. I guess there's some silver linings in some ways, but, you know commend you for not only being self-aware enough to ask other people that, but also, you know, dealing with it with therapy, which is something that we obviously advocate on this show. So yeah, I guess so. you were sober, 1990. And then let's fast forward a little bit. You were extremely close with your mother. Very. And sadly, she went into a coma and passed away August 6, 2005, which was only... She did. She had vascular dementia. And we knew that it was just a matter of time when she was going to leave us. Absolutely. It took about five years from diagnosis to death. And vascular dementia, is that when she doesn't, did she not remember your names? Did her memory start to go? It's not like Alzheimer's, Todd. It's, okay. it's vascular dementia. She came and went, which was even a little sadder. Because when she would be wow. lucid, she would know something was happening to her. No. And our response was, we're here and we love you and you're going to be okay. And that was actually her last words to me, that you're going to be okay. But she did die on August the 6th of 2005. And like a lot of families, I think, we took her into one of the siblings' homes and let her transition there. We each took 12 weeks off of our job, right, to make sure that we could rotate. But by the time we got her here, she didn't last 12 weeks. She didn't last the three months because she was in an assisted living facility, and then we brought her into my sister's home, and she lasted about 12 weeks, a miraculous 12 weeks. I've never seen a transition quite ever like that, especially it being your mother. But no, and I've learned how to not say but, because it really negates everything I've just said previously. I try to use the word and. It's part of my new way of rewiring what I say and how I speak. I just wanted to echo that it was a remarkable experience to watch her transition. It brought the family much closer together. 
Yeah. And so you guys are all kind of rallying around her, which is amazing. At least she had y'all's support during that time. And I'm sure it was a very confusing time for her. And we're so sorry for your loss. All my condolences. Oh, she remembered. She knew I was one of her kids. She just couldn't remember which one. Oh, wow. So when she would come into lucidity, she would call me by my brother's name. And I wouldn't correct her. I was told not to correct her. And as I look back on it, it was just, I'm not afraid of death so much. It was a beautiful experience to watch her last breath, knowing we were around her. She was safe. We were safe. And then her journey began. Her next journey began with a couple of road bumps (laughs) in between. Yeah, so after she passed and we learned this Actually, just recently, even though Todd and you have been close for some time, that that Hurricane Katrina hit within weeks afterwards. And then her body went missing for eight months. For eight months. Can you explain, like, not only just her passing, obviously that affected you, you can't even imagine, but also the subsequent loss of her body. How did y'all handle that? And Sure. My mother donated her body to science. And her body was transported from Lafayette to New Orleans, where the process was going to take place to make her a cadaver. And I learned a lot about that process. There's a process to make you a cadaver, to send you off to a university so they can perform their medical research. And Hurricane Katrina hit within 21 days of her death. We don't know if the process was complete. We didn't know because the hospital was destroyed. She was 30 feet under water for 30 days. So we don't know what was left, what was remaining. And in May of 2006, I got a phone call. I was the executor of her estate. And it said that we have your mother's remains. They're at the Anatomical Bureau of Statistics. Please call this number. And I did. And I asked, how do you know that what you have is my mother? And I was told there was a toe tag, a laminated toe tag. So I trusted them. And she was delivered to us on Mother's Day 2006. Just so happened to be that day. And I called my family and I said, Mom's in the house. We got her back. But we did. We searched for her because we didn't know exactly where she was, you know, where they transported because we knew she was in a morgue. But after 30 days of being underwater, where did her remains go for eight months? I don't know that eight month journey. We never knew. And at some point we did stop searching. And just accepted that she was everywhere, you know? That's what we had to accept. And she came back to us. Yeah. Very blessed, very grateful. That didn't happen to some people. Yeah, I was going to say it's kind of, I mean, I'm sure there's a mixture of emotions, but I think that there's something kind of beautiful that she returned on Mother's Day to you guys. Absolutely. I think she might have had something to do with that. I think so. And I knew at Uh that point it was time to leave. New Orleans, where I was living at the time, and I accepted a job in Los Angeles. 
sight unseen, right. had never been to Los Angeles. I just needed to go somewhere where it didn't rain. Right. Because I developed post-traumatic stress syndrome. Right. You did. And there was a scene in an article that said basically the compounded grief from both the loss of your mother and your city. You ended up moving to LA, but it sort of manifested itself in the form of like painful, sebaceous cysts. It did. So how did that affect you? And did your move to LA help you start over? I'm not a very good person who handles stress. And with this incident, my stress manifested itself in sebaceous cysts on my forehead. And Todd knows me well enough, I'm sure he's noticed scars on my forehead where they had to go in and remove them. They were extremely painful. I don't think he noticed just scars because I was the one that informed him that you had sebaceous cysts. And he goes, oh my God, what was that about? Like, I did not know that. Yeah. If he were to look closer, you could see several markings on my forehead where it was, I mean, I never discussed it. It was just, please remove them. They're yeah. painful. But I did take a job in Los Angeles at a law firm. I've been a paralegal for 41 years. So I knew what I was doing. I knew that I could handle a job in another state, even though I had been with a law firm for decades. I knew that it was time for me. If it wouldn't have been then, I would have never gone. You know, it was just this opportunity. And it's like, I want to take it. I want to see another place. And my life fell apart when I got there. I was homesick. My father was dying. I had very few friends. And I was suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. It wasn't until I left New Orleans that everything came up because I was just in survival mode. Just survive this day, survive this day. And then I got to Los Angeles and things fell apart quite quickly. And I needed to, I sought help and my life got better. It took about three years. I couldn't stop talking about it. That's one of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder is that you cannot stop talking about the event. I couldn't stop. It took three years for me to stop talking about it. I didn't even know I was talking about it, but it became part of who I was. And I got through that sober. Yeah, I definitely wanted to touch on that because, you know, I think a lot of people think of PTSD as some like people holding up and not like expressing the fear and reliving it in their head, oh. but it manifests in so many different ways. Like it's very personal. I could not stop talking about it. It took years for me to resolve and accept what had happened. And it was a lot of prayer, meditation, medication, friends, a sponsor doing recovery work for me to finally... <sighs> Breathe yeah. again. During that time, did you struggle to stay sober? No. No, you didn't even think about it. I never thought about it. I was very connected to the rooms of recovery at that time. Very connected. Los Angeles has an incredible sober community. And they put their arms around me and I made friends and got outside help. And through my little, I'll call it my little team, they helped me through it. Well, that's kind of amazing. It's kind of a connection. Like once you kind of got that diagnosis, that it kind of helped you to reconnect with society in a way. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad that, that you were, again, able to seek treatment and get help for that because there's so many people that don't. 
you know, that that kind of keep shoving it down and not dealing with it. Even though you think three years is a long time to be talking about it, I still think that that's shorter than it is for a lot of other people. So, you know, I, I commend you again for doing that. Thank you. I did it on the shoulders of other people. <laughs> well, after your diagnosis and your battle with PTSD, you shifted your focus to getting involved with the community. What programs in the community were you passionate about? And did giving back help you heal in any way? Absolutely. The Rooms of Recovery provide so much invitation for service work that I became involved in that. And when I was living in New Orleans, I was very much involved with the HIV awareness and prevention. And I began doing little benefits in Los Angeles for that purpose as well. It's a lot of fun. And that also helped me. Service to others got me out of myself, got me out of my head. And I work a lot and I love my job. The thing is that I had to keep busy. I had to keep busy. That was very important for me at that time. I've learned to slow down just recently, but at that time I needed to keep really busy. And that worked for me. That's wonderful. And then you also get to help people as a byproduct. I mean, like I know that obviously the helping people is integral, but I think it was a very symbiotic relationship. Yes, it brought us all very much closer together when there's a fellowship and you can have trust among, you know, gay men and women and straight men and the, just the recovery community just propels you to another place. So Todd mentioned that you were kind of the forefront of creating an outreach program for HIV. Is that what one of those programs was or did that? That was in New Orleans, Laura. Thank you for asking that question. I was very much involved. The gay community, sober gay community in New Orleans of course, smaller than that in Los Angeles. There was more of an opportunity to find little gaps that we could close in order to help men and women get sober. And there was a portion of the French Quarter, it was kind of called the Healing Center. It had the No AIDS Task Force. It had the Gay and Lesbian Community Center. And it had the Lambda Center, all within walking distance of each other. So we approached the No AIDS Task Force, lending our support to any person who was HIV positive, having a hard time with drugs and alcohol, to literally walk across the street and see if the fellowship may help them with their addictions. Because this was pre-1995, 96, where there was no cure and very little hope of surviving the disease. And that was a huge accomplishment for our little group of misfits. It was a reach out, right, to the No AIDS Task Force, letting them know that we were available to help anyone who was HIV positive or who had AIDS by that time, who were having addiction problems to let us know. And Johnny, this was in the late 80s? No, this was in the early 90s. This was pre-cocktail. Okay. So a scary time. Okay. This was pre-cocktail. Yeah. Definitely seems like a scary time because gotcha. you've kind of seen what's come before you. There were men dying in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous back then. Oh, my God. It was, 
and they stayed wow. sober. That's miraculous in and of itself. Yeah. It was an extraordinary time for me because I had just come out. I had just got sober, and I, I began my own recovery journey with men who were dying. And it was so intense. But they were happy, and they were sober, and they were doing service to get out of their head. But I attended a lot of memorials back then. I sure did. So we're here to talk about your story, Johnny. And one major character in that story is your now ex-husband, Greg Luganis, who was an Olympic gold medalist and one of the first openly gay HIV positive athletes in the 90s. How did you two meet and how did meeting him change your life? Oh, my God. I love that man. We met on Match.com. Go Match.com. And I was going through profiles, and it was like, that guy looks like Greg Luganis. I never really followed him. I mean, he was so famous, everyone knew who he was because of his accomplishments. And it's like, that's got to be a fake profile. It's got to be a fake. And then he winked at me. And I winked back or whatever, the hand wave, and realized, wow, this is Greg Luganis. What is he doing on a Match site? Who wouldn't want to be affiliated with such an incredible human being that we know of through the news? And he ended up being an incredible human being just without the news. And we went on a date, and it was just electric, you know, just sure the image was there and the stories and the fame and all of that was just electric when I saw him. But I also saw a very shy, humble, sweet, very attractive human being. And we connected. Yeah. Within the same CNN article we referenced before, it was mentioned that you kind of bonded over experiencing struggles in your past, both going through kind of traumatic experiences. Did you find that sure. true? And how did y'all work? Like I just understood and he understood the feeling of thinking we were different than others, which we weren't. The feeling of, we understood each other's awkwardness of not quite fitting in, right? I was very gregarious, and I am very gregarious. And Greg is somewhat shy. And I think we found, in fact, I know we found that attractive about each other. Yeah. And we began dating. Well, yes. that's... the. It's a very adorable story. I honestly, I think that people that are, I think people are surprised when like people of high stature end up on dating sites. But sometimes when you're that high up, you're kind of isolated. So that's the way you can reach out to people because you don't come into contact a lot of times with people that aren't just trying to get your autograph or ask you a question or something. So it's hard to do that on a deeper level. So I think it was a good move on his party. Obviously, it brought him to you, but... Yes, you changed my yeah, life. Yeah, so I guess, you know, how did you kind of handle being married to someone who was such a public figure, especially once you became his assistant? Did you ever feel like pressure being part of the limelight or any kind of, I don't know, resentment or generally just, I mean, it seems like a big change in lifestyle from what you were doing before. Well, i tell you what, Laura... When I was a little kid, and I think a lot of little kids have that dream of being famous, and especially when we're performers and, you know, when we're gregarious and we want attention, I loved it. I loved it. And as far as for the assistant part, I want to make this very clear. 
I gave myself the title of helping him out with whatever he needed. And appearances, interviews, all that kind of appearances, stuff. interviews, what he wore. I totally controlled his his life, which was part of my character traits that I had to take responsibility for years later. When I watched the documentary back on board, I loved the fame. I loved his fame. I loved the red carpets, traveling the world, meeting Hollywood. Having that exposure, that was a blast. it was a blast. It was something that I would have never had experienced. I mean, going to the Olympics and, you know, the way he looked at me and just, it was just, it's magic. And when I saw the documentary during my rehabilitation, I was asked to look at my character traits and I saw a whole new documentary. I saw one of control. I'm always right. Let me give you unsolicited advice. Here's my opinion. I'm going to judge this. I saw a totally new behavior in myself as opposed to seeing it for the first time. I saw issues that I needed to deal with of trying to change someone who's perfect just as they are, who's perfect human being. I was not focused on myself. So my sense of control, judgment, opinion, I'm always right, do this, wear this, say this, led to me giving myself that title. I'm his assistant. I manage his life. And when I have learned, in hindsight, that I became very resentful of my own actions because of that. And I needed to survive. I was disconnected from the fellowship and thus my seven-year alcoholic relapse began. It was the only way. And just like when I was drinking and using to survive pre-coming out, my best thinking said, this is the only way I'm going to survive is by using and drinking. It's the only way I'm going to survive this. My best thinking did not say get help, go to AA, get reconnected, find some rules for yourself, start loving yourself. My best thinking wasn't there. My best thinking was destroy yourself. Well, speaking of your relapse, you know, sort of around the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic, you had several traumatic events happen. Your brother passed away. Correct. You did relapse and you ended up having triple bypass surgery. And I just... I think I want to know, how did all of those events impact you? And how did you finally manage to find sobriety again? I didn't care. I wanted to die, Todd. It came to the point of, now something told me in my head to get to a cardiologist. I was not feeling well. My lifestyle was unhealthy. And I walked off the street into a cardiologist's office, told him what I was feeling, and three weeks later, I had a triple bypass. And he said, you know, Johnny, men don't do what you just did. You walked in off the street and said, I'm not feeling well. Most men just drop dead. I had something called a widow maker. That means you just drop dead. You don't have a heart attack. You drop dead. Oh, my God. And they caught it in time. And 
that didn't stop me from trying to destroy myself. Even that didn't stop me. I still wanted to destroy. I could not grasp the depth of the issues that I never dealt with. You know, people talk about, oh, that's a childhood issue and your inner child. And I used to think that was such bullshit. Now I know it's the foundation of recovery. That is. You know, first I had to get physically sober and then dig really deep. And I got a trauma coach. Actually, Greg got me a trauma coach. Wow. It was him himself. He said, I want you to see this woman. And I still see her today. So Greg literally helped save my life. And I got a lifestyle coach, and I got a therapist, and I got all of these things to help me. However, on that last night of my relapse, March 10th, 2021, I had heavy suicidal ideations, which were scary. And I was two years out of a triple bypass, started smoking cigarettes again, drinking. I mean, just I wanted to die. Even though I had saved my life, I still wanted to die because there was unresolved issues going on. And I came home just in a blackout. And I came out of that blackout talking to my husband, telling him everything that was wrong, taking the focus off of me once again, right? And I finally asked him, I said, what do you want out of me? And he said the most important words I've ever heard. He said, Johnny, I just want you to love yourself. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I had no idea. I mean, I knew the, what that sounded like, but what did it mean? What did it mean to love myself? That was a whole layer of stuff that I had no idea how to do. I knew how to take care of you. I knew how to take care of other people. I knew how to take care of my attorneys at work. I knew how to take care of my brothers and sisters. But I didn't know how to take care of myself. I had no idea. Taking care of others was taking care of myself. That was my best thinking. So on March the 17th, I moved out. I couldn't stay. And I came to Louisiana and got into rehab again and decided that, well, I have to love myself. I want to love myself. And... I had already destroyed the marriage. I decided to end it. And so I did. Yeah, I was going to kind of add that, like, you know, in the midst of all that, you guys obviously were having problems because, as you said, there was a lot of unresolved trauma going on. But you did recently finalize your divorce with Greg. You know, I think I kind of, we you know, a little bit of the answer to this, but what do you think kind of ultimately perpetuated the dissolution and how have you dealt with what is effectively another loss in your life? I don't look at it as another loss. I look at it as one of the best things that could have happened for me. And ultimately, I hope for him. But for me, it wasn't a loss. It was a win. I speak to him. I texted him today. We meet once a week in Los Angeles. So that our dogs can grow up together. We go out to dinner. We speak on the phone. 
I go and visit him at our old home. He's the first person I call when something important happens. When something really important happens in my life, he's the, still the first person I call. You know? And I received a text from him the other day. He said, you're the most significant person in my life. So it wasn't, it was an uncoupling. It wasn't a hate-filled bashing of sorts. It was done with love, integrity, privacy, and we did it together. We did it together. We had no attorneys. We used a mediator, right? And we got together and just discussed. God, Johnny, just to say that it's not, it's you didn't look at it as another loss. I think anyone hopes for that outcome when they are going through a divorce. You want to remain amicable. And ultimately, this person was in your life. You were together for 10 plus years. And it's like to get to that point where you both are still significant in each other's lives and you still have love and reverence for one another is so beautiful because a lot of the times people they internalize so much or they blame the other person so much that they can't see where they added to the problem or whatever. And I think you guys parting, you have sort of been able to gain yourself. Oh my God, I adore him. I mean, how can you forget someone who's given you so much to remember? You can't. He gave me so much to remember. You know, and I will forever be grateful for crossing paths with him. And I'm going to grow old with him, just not as my husband. We're going to, me and Greg are going to grow old. You know, he, we texted this morning and we're going to speak this afternoon. And like I said, once a week in Los Angeles, we get together with our little dog family and, you know, catch up. He's got an extraordinary life. I mean, he's full of stories that just continue to amaze me. And we look forward to seeing each other every Saturday, every Sunday, and you know, just to catch up. And there are people in that park that say, I've never seen that. I've never seen a couple that are divorced that actually hug each other. How are you doing? I'm sure they exist. And we knew, I think, well, I knew early on, because we know each other, that it was going to be amicable, private, and loving. And that's exactly what occurred. I kind of can't help but point out the fact that, for one, and this is something that's kind of been a theme with a lot of the therapists that we've talked to, and particularly one, Lair, shout out to Lair out there, about the importance of personal like responsibility and accountability. And it seems like you really, you did take that accountability. And I think that makes all the difference when you're splitting. 100%. There is no blame. And I'm 100% responsible for destroying that marriage. And I'm also 100% responsible or 50% responsible in recreating a new relationship with an incredible human being. You know, we both wanted that, to rebuild something that didn't have the word marriage attached to it. It has the word friendship attached to it. And I have one more thing, one more compliment I would like to pay to you <laughs> in, in relationship to this, is that I also noticed this theme of I know that you've tr struggled to 
find that self-love and that self-compassion. But there's so many points in your life where you do take that, that accountability and go and say, I need help for this, or I need help for, you know, throughout this whole entire podcast has been at least three or four times. And especially when that you went to the doctor and said, something is wrong. And that man's like, well, you're the only man that I've ever, you know, most men would be dead right now. You you could still recognize that things were amiss. Yes. And thank you for saying that. There's a lot of times when other people notice an improvement before you notice it yourself, especially in my case, because I'm a perfectionist and only when I say that I've improved, then it has occurred. And I know that not to be true today. And even though I went into, you know, I got into recovery early and I had a lot of years and I, I have 19 months now, I'm very proud of that. I don't talk about really the 23 years that I had because when I first got sober again, I couldn't stop talking about that. I wanted people to know that I had long-term sobriety, blah, 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 blah. And that was something I needed to work on. I have today. I have today. I woke up sober today. And yes, I get to count. Again, it's very important. Time is not a tool of, of staying sober. Time is about experience to help others. And even though I asked for help in very different stages of my life, I didn't know that that was self-care, self-love, self. There was a, a whole nother layer I still obsessed. I still had scary thoughts. I still criticized. I still judged. I still gossiped. I focused too much on the negative than the positive. There was still the blame game. All of that that I really had to look at in the last two years since I've, I've been on my own. And I was like, how am I going to do this? I was invited to love myself how do I do it? How do I really do it? So I started searching the web and Joe Dispenza and, you know, Oprah has podcasts and, you know, Dr. Dyer has caught, you know, there's a lot out there. And then I found this woman. Her name was Louise Hay. And she spoke to me. She spoke to me and she changed my life. She's no longer with us. She was from Los Angeles. And the way she speaks, it's like she's speaking directly to me. So I started studying and listening to her podcasts and talks for hours out of the day. Hours. So I could really know the instruction on how to love myself. And she came up with 10 points. Stop all criticism. You know, and I need to come from a place of being okay with me, how I am today, and then make changes. Not wait until I get the new boyfriend or the new this, that. Being okay now and then make changes. But I had to stop all criticism. I am no better than anyone else, anyone on this earth. And I also had to stop, I had to stop scaring myself with all these frightful thoughts of the future. You know, because my default is negative. The worst thing will happen, right? And I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, 
it's like it's all for naught because it all works out better than I could plan it myself if I just get out of the way. One of the most important things that I learned is that I had to be gentle and kind to my mind. My mind is a bad neighborhood. I cannot go in there alone. I have to take someone with me, right? So I learned affirmations. I learned when I open my phone, there's a picture of me at two years old. So every time I open my phone, it's me as a baby. And I say, hi, I love you. Hi, I love you. Hi, I love you. And she taught me how to do mirror work, which is really kind of uncomfortable. So every time I pass a mirror, I wink at myself and say, you're awesome. I love you. You're awesome. I love you. And it's gotten easier. And now I can stand in front of a mirror completely naked and say, I love my body. I love me. Even though I may not mean it, I can say it. I can say it. I can say it. It's like going to the gym and you want to muscle up and you go the first time and you come back home and you look in the mirror and you don't see a change. You go the second time, you come back and look in the mirror, you don't see a change and then you quit. Well, just like that, you have to set a regime and make it part of your life. And then you see the muscle. Then you see the definition. So I have to do that with my mind. Because my mind is an alcoholic mind. It likes to obsess. It likes to go to the dark places. It, you know, likes to stir, you know, shit and and chaos and drama. And I had to start being loving to those negatives, right? And I created Mm -hmm. them. So I used to think that I was not in charge of my thoughts because I couldn't get it out of my head. And I have learned that I am in charge of my thoughts. I created this thought. Go away. Go pray, meditate, affirmations. And do the best that I can. And just that's what it is, is I can do the best that I can. And that woman has changed my life. She has 30 little podcasts on YouTube. She has books, audio books. And I just listen. It's the same message in almost every podcast, but that's what she wants. She wants that repetition. She wants that repetition for me so I can learn that it's really super simple for a very complicated man. And it really changed my life. I was having a conversation with with my two sisters, because my next door neighbors here in Louisiana are my two sisters. So that, this whole four months brought up a lot of things, childhood issues that that I never knew. And we got to resolve some of those things, which has been beautiful. But my sister said, you talk differently these days. I can see you pause. And I think Todd has seen that too, that I talk differently these days. And I know I have certain rules at Finally, after being an open border for so many decades, I finally have rules in my life. And no is a complete sentence. And usually when I say no, it's none of my business, it makes me uncomfortable, or I'm just not interested. If someone needs a reason why I'm saying no, and they they won't accept that no is a complete sentence, and if I feel necessary, it's like, well, it's usually because three interests, you know, just to let you know, it's none of my business. It makes me uncomfortable or I'm not interested. And look, when you're a people pleaser and you stop pleasing, those people are not pleased. Well, that's because you're setting boundaries. Right. And they think boundaries are for them. It's like, no, these boundaries are for me. 
That's the beauty of a boundary. It has nothing to do with that person. It has everything to do with what I want. Today, I know what I want, right? I have been celibate for so long, you know, not being in an intimate relationship. And it's been, that was just a rule that, not a boundary, just a rule, something that I wanted to experience, you know? And because I always jumped too fast. If I had sex with you, you were my boyfriend, right? It was that crazy craziness. And being and part of loving myself was to not get involved right away. Because that's my MO. It relieves the pain and, you know, but I take all that garbage with me. And this time it, it hurt so much. I was hurting myself so much. It's like, my God, I'm going to be 62. I've got to clean this up because I want my second half of my life to be much more fun, you know, and much more, oh my God, the world is so abundant with all of these things. And I've, you know, with COVID, I closed myself off. I never contracted COVID because I became a monk and I became isolated, right? Never had anyone over. Todd came over a couple of times. And, you know, I trust Todd. I love Todd. He's a friend. And he would come over and visit. But very few people would come to me because they were not, you know, I just wouldn't have it. I will say, Johnny, you said earlier, like, you know, Todd can attest that you're speaking differently. And I would also say I see a physical change. Like your eyes are calmer. Like you are just way more gentle on yourself and it radiates when you're with people. It radiates when you're having conversations. It's just, you're in just a way more peaceful place than I think when I first met you, you know, and I was with Johnny the weekend his brother passed. Do you remember that? You were, I forgot you were with me. Yeah. And it was to see you navigate through that. And to now, you're putting in the goddamn work. And because of that, you are reaping so many benefits. And it's you're radiating happiness. You're radiating inner success. Yeah. Thank you. You know? Yeah, I just want to let you know that. But you are you are writing a book about your experiences. And it, with the working title, Loving and Leaving the Goat. Now, what can, do you hope to accomplish with putting your story out there? Number one, I never thought about it, r- about writing about my experiences. Close friends that knew what I had gone through kept saying, you need to write a book. This No one would believe this. You've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. And so I began writing it and it was coming from a place of resentment. So I put it down. It's like, the, I want this book to come from a place of love. My message this is not a tell-all, right? It's a tell-all on me. And it needs to come from a place of love. Sure, there's a couple of characters in it, but I'm the main character of the book. And it's just my experience of how you can persevere and how you can become resilient, even if you're almost a senior citizen, <laughs> you know? And I want to make my remaining years the happiest and the most fulfilling, the ones that that express my gregarious side and my 
serious side and my loving side and my sarcastic side and, you know, just everything. Because Todd knows me very well. I will say things off the cuff and he'll just do your, your sick son of a bitch, you know that? <laughs> but I love that. Now, I could only say, I could only say it to Todd because he's become such a – I never thought that man would become such a dear friend of mine. But he has and is. And I want my words to help someone. There will always be – I have looked at it and, and my outline always has – a solution after the story, that this is how I solved this. I didn't want to leave anything hanging. And if I didn't solve it, I'm going to say that too. I'm still working on this, you know? So if you have any, you know, suggestions, I will ask. The one thing I do not like is unsolicited advice, unsolicited judgment, unsolicited, you know, opinions. When I started working on all of this, I went to the extreme. It's like, I can't be around any of that. Now I can be because I can't change other people. So if I hear a judgment from somebody else or somebody else to somebody else, it's like, thanks for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. Not, you really need to, you know, there I, there I go again. Those old behavior patterns come right back up. So I just say, thank you for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just leave it at that. Yeah, it sounds like an active dedication to your growth. It has to be because I was now when some of these patterns come up, you guys, I get physically ill when some of these old behavioral patterns come up. The number one cause of cancer is resentment. It actually eats your body. If you listen to these professionals, it's like your feelings contribute to your physical health. Makes sense, right? So if I'm being critical all the time, the universe here is critical and it's going to give me more to criticize, more here. You you want to be critical? We're going to give you more to criticize since that's what you're asking for. So I'm asking the universe on a daily basis for peace and love and cohesiveness. And there are many affirmations that I can do and the universe hears that. This has been my personal experience and it gives me that. It gives me more love to experience, more cohesiveness so I can figure things out, more, you know, if it's service to other people so I can get out of my head. But if I'm throwing judgments out and gossip and got and all of those things that I personally find uncomfortable when I express them myself, the universe is going to give me more to gossip about. It's going to give me more chaos. It's going to, and it's like, wow, the universe wants to work in my favor. All I have to do is get out of the way and ask it. All I have to do is to ask the universe, hey, help me out here. It is kind of crazy. Like, I think once you start focusing on your surroundings, a lot of people, you know, when they, you're giving it power, when you, you just kind of keep ruminating or catastrophizing or you know, complaining. And so you can see in real time, kind of like what you just referenced, that that the more you do that, the more that it gets given to you. So why not flip it on its head and just go the other way with it? I mean, it's something I still struggle with. And I, I relate to you in a lot of ways. I'm like the one that my head is spinning in the middle of the night right. and, and I have to go, go, go to almost run away from those feelings. But then once you can sit with them, 
And it's almost kind of like all wrapped up in this idea of forgiveness, right? Kind of like forgiving yourself for those thoughts, forgiving your past and not ruminating on that, forgiving other people for the way they may have treated you and or me currently, even in the moment saying, you know, like, I think that goes to thank you for your thoughts. I forgive you for them. Right. Thanks. Oh, Goodbye. definitely. <laughs> I used to like worry about the past so much. And a beautiful friend of mine said, look, Johnny, it's 12 noon. I'm going to give you 10 minutes. You go over there and you change the past and you get back in. <laughs> It's just like ridiculous. Now, doesn't that sound ridiculous? And he said, okay, I'm going to give you another 10 minutes and you can go worry about the future and come back and tell (laughs) me what. And see how it changes it. And it's like, oh my God, that's when you put it that way. But Laura, you brought up something that's very important. That is forgiveness. Because once you forgive yourself and others and just, just forgive, it opens up avenues for healing. And if we're adult about it, It can just be, I use the word magical a lot because I think the world is magical still today. You know, the world's a magical place with magical people. And I have to understand that those are the people I want to surround myself with. And it's okay to let other people go. Yeah. You know, and I don't have to give an excuse. I don't have to ghost. Exactly. You know, I don't have to do anything. I can just lovingly let them go and have an adult conversation about it. It's hard. And that's another thing. I had to rewire the way I thought. I am hardwired to think a certain way. And now, very gently and very lovingly, we're stripping those wires away and we're reinstalling new wires of thought. But the only way I can be rewired is to practice it Every day. And guess what, guys? It's fun. Todd said, you know, you've really put in the work. And it's like, no, I've really put in the joy. I've really put in the adventure. That four-letter word doesn't sit well with a lot of people. And I had to redefine what words meant. Like, fun for me back then was, hey, let's drink and strip and cry and psychedelics and stuff. Now, fun's a bologna sandwich watching the reruns of The Golden Girls. That's fun. (laughs) Which actually sounds amazing right now, honestly. (laughs) You know, I mean, I had to redefine what does fun mean for me? What does love mean for me? What does sex mean for me? What does intimacy mean? What does friendship mean for me? And then find those rules that nourish me and then just accept everything else that this is the way the world is, but I need to surround myself with love and nourishment. And it doesn't have to be validation. I can validate myself. It's nice to get validated. Sure. I sought that. I was hungered for that in a certain area of my life and in a certain time in my life. But now it's like, I'm doing okay. I'm doing, but to get that validation is just a little icing on top. It's like, wow, thank you so much. I'm not asking for your validation, but thank you for for doing that. But but this is my job. It's my job to get better. And if I need some help, I'm definitely going to ask you. Yeah, I mean, I think overall your story is incredible. So I will be waiting with bated breath for this book to to come out whenever that may be. And I think 
you know, just to give you a little bit of icing on the cake, I think that you are an incredible person and have done, you know, put the joy back in your life. And I think a lot of people can learn from that. And we'll certainly have some links to, you said Louise Hay? Louise Hay. Okay. We'll have her in the show notes. Well, she's gone. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, we'll have her YouTube and everything. Oh, yeah, definitely put her. There's a little series that lasts an hour. It's called 10 Ways to Love Yourself. Okay, wonderful. There's all sorts of varying topics that she uses, and but it's all about praising yourself. Loving. It's okay to give yourself a pat on the back, believe me, because I beat myself up for years and years and years. It's, it's, it's okay to say... I know what I want now. Oh my God, now I'm scared because I'm scared because I know what I want. Yeah. You know, you're not scared when you don't know what you want. You're just, you just go. Yeah. Now I know what I want. And it's like, ooh, I know what I want now. But it's okay. Bring it to <laughs> yeah. me. Bring it to me. Bring it to me. Speaking of that, and kind of, I think it's a good bookend to this whole conversation is we have a tradition on the show. We ask a question of the day. And it's it's just a nice little palate cleanser after a lot of deep talk. But I think this kind of goes to your magical statement. But do you, Johnny, like or dislike surprises? Why or why not? I love surprises. I love to be surprised. I really do. And the reason why is because someone else has the wherewithal, number one, they know I like surprises and they're thinking about me. Let's surprise Johnny. I love surprises. I love to be caught off guard. Number one, it keeps me honest, right? It keeps mm -hmm. me accountable, you know, like a surprise party or a surprise experience or that surprise when coincidence or kismet happens. I love that. I love surprises. It's a part of life that it's almost like I don't have this experience, but it's like having a child and you don't get the ultrasound. You do it in the old, when it comes out, it comes out and there's just, there it is. It's like, oh my God, I'm so surprised to see you. You know, it's, it's the way that life works and surprises are fun. Who doesn't want a surprise party? I mean, I'm sure there are people who don't <laughs> like say, surprises. There are some you know, now, now, spoilers is another thing. Don't tell me who won Miss USA because <laughs> yeah. I'm a big beauty pageant fanatic. Let me watch yeah. that. But surprises, it's lovely. Well, that's amazing. Johnny, we cannot thank you enough for coming on this show and being so open, so vulnerable, so honest. I think this is going to help a lot of people that may be struggling or maybe in a rut or maybe just need to think differently. Maybe someone needs a rewiring. I think we all need to be rewired. <laughs> yeah, let's all get this treatment. And we all have choices whether we do that or not. You know, thank you so much again. Thank you so much. And we hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Have a great Sunday. Okay, Todd, how did you think that went? I thought he was so incredibly open and just so his message, you know, I think I told you this off air, but I didn't know a lot of that stuff. I didn't know that, you know, I've just known him as a friend, but I don't, I didn't Google <laughs> him. I just know him yeah, personally. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and we've never really talked about, I knew when his, about when his mom passed, I was with him when his brother passed, but I did not know about her body going missing. And I remember when the triple bypass happened, but 
I, again, didn't realize it was because of the lifestyle he was leading. Like, there were just things that were filled in that were just like, wow, he's so open right now. But he seems like he's in such a great journey of healing. And I don't know. What did you think? I mean, I thought it was amazing. I think, you know, not having known him before this, it was, you know, just initially off the bat, like y'all kind of go into how he's changed. My first initial thought was like, this guy is just chill. You know, when we were even setting up to start recording, he's like, I don't know how to do that. What are we doing? You just help me. And it was just, it was very like endearing and sweet. But then to find out, you know, even some of that stuff, like, you know, I did Google him because I did not know him. And he, it is a lot of things popping up about his divorce and about Greg, who, you know, we mentioned, and if anybody has any more interest in learning more about him. There's a documentary out there called Back on Board, pretty famous guy. But he, you know, at the end of the day, he's so humble. And I really loved the emphasis he put, especially at the end on the steps he took to serve like, you know, because, you know, as time went on, he obviously did things to fix his situations. And he would go in, like I mentioned, that that was a theme. I kind of kept picking up on, but that he finally recognized that you can't just keep putting band-aids on a bullet wound. So he's done a lot to self-reflect. And I think the personal responsibility and accountability aspect is so important and not just for a relationship or the end of a relationship or anything, but for yourself, like to not just push off, you know, when you're having, not to say you can't complain or say like, Oh, I, you know, I got in a, fender bender today, like, but it was my fault. Like you can still say the facts of the situation, but that once you kind of put a name to your part in it, I feel like it takes a lot of the power away. Like you think that by blaming somebody else that you're, you know, solving the problem or if just by walking away, you're solving the problem. It's like, no, you have to self-reflect and wonder. I'm glad you pointed out the personal responsibility element that Lair Torrent had brought up in another podcast. I mean, Johnny came off very solution-based in his work. Like he said that he's going to add to his book, like he wants there to be something that's, you know, an issue and then a, a solution. And then he says he's also still exploring and learning and growing and healing. It's just this friggin' journey we're on is just, it continues to reveal itself in different ways. And I just love that he's listening to himself. He's healing his inner child. Like when he started talking about the inner child, I just, I kind of got goosebumps because, you know, it's interesting. The people that are really doing the the joy (laughs) are doing the joy work, not work, but the (laughs) joy work. Yeah. The joy work are all kind of come to the same thing that we have to heal the little child that didn't feel good enough or didn't feel seen or didn't feel, didn't feel loved, didn't feel heard. But yeah, he's just such a great human. Yeah. And I just, I love the idea that him and Greg are still friends and that Greg even found him that trauma coach, but he also, or, and not, but, and he did have the initiative to, you know, even while still you know, he had therapy, but still go out and Google and find resources. I've definitely related to him in a lot of ways because I'm one of those people that's like, my mind is going a mile and minute all the time. And it's really hard to just like sit with my thoughts and do that. I mean, I've been working on it as we've talked about, but it's one of those things where I'm very a solution-based person and need like to at least know where I'm going and what I should be striving for. And so both the good and the bad 
I definitely related to as far as how his mind works. And I'm very much into this rewiring concept. I'm all about it. Let's rewire. Let's just move everything around up there. And well, he pointed out, we've been conditioned to believe that how we're supposed to handle our trauma, how we're supposed to handle when someone is not kind to us, how we're supposed to respond if we need someone to leave our life. We don't have to ghost them. We don't have to do anything. But like he said, we just, you just lovingly have that adult conversation. I loved that he said no is a sentence because that is like my mantra right now. Cause you know, me, I kind of, I'm like, Oh, you need help with this? Oh, you know, yes, yes, yes. I'll. Well, that's you because you both are people pleasers. Yes, yes. He brought it up when you're not pleasing other people and they're used to that, then you might as well have just like stabbed them in the heart because it's like, well, yeah. who, what? Like, you're the yes person. What's going on here? Yeah, I need you to be this in my story. If you're not this in my story, I don't know how to handle it. What do you mean? What do you mean, no? And honestly, when I think maybe I'm a little bit of a broken record here, but I feel like when you set boundaries, the way somebody reacts to those boundaries is very telling about them. So if they freak out, then that they've got some work to do. You know, it's not about you. It's they've got some things that they need to kind of figure out. And one of those is don't expect every people pleaser out there to always be pleasing you. (laughs) You know, we all have our our own things going on. And I I love that we kind of ended on the, the forgiveness note, because I think that's very important. I think we need to talk about forgiving ourselves a lot more, too. 100%. But I want to ask you the question of the day. Do you like or dislike surprises? Why or why not? Okay. I have something to confess. I am obsessed with surprises. Like my entire life, I wanted a surprise party and maybe I just didn't like say it enough or something, but never got one. Then about two years ago, I finally had my first surprise party, which I definitely knew in the coming hours beforehand when something was up, but I was like, no, live in this moment live in this moment. You're being surprised no matter what. It is going to be a surprise of some kind. (laughs) And it was like, I was just smiling from ear to ear the rest of the time, because the same thing that Johnny said, like that shows that somebody put in enough effort and cared about you enough Mm -hmm. to do all that. And then everybody that's involved with it too. I mean, it's just, it's a very like, I don't know. I want to say validating, but we're, you know, it's the cherry on top of things, but (laughs) life surprises aren't always the the best. If it's, if it's a bad surprise, it's not that great, (laughs) but still in life, I'm learning to accept surprises, even in life, you know, just the everyday things and see the joy in that. And not so much the, Oh my God, I'm not prepared. I didn't overthink this for five hours. So what am I supposed to do? Exactly. I mean, that is one cool thing about being uh, (laughs) Johnny and I, you know, being of the LGBT plus community, (laughs) we don't get surprises like like y'all do. I mean, I keep trying, but I don't know what the problem is. I don't know why I can't have a baby. Oh my gosh. I was going to say, what are you (laughs) referencing? I'm teasing. I'm teasing. No, no, no. Well, you know. No, no. But I hear you. You don't have to worry about those kind of surprises. No, don't have to worry about that kind of surprise. So how about you? I love surprises. I've had a couple surprise parties in my life or someone shows up out of nowhere, an old friend, and they're like, surprise, I'm here and we're having lunch or whatever. I think I love that. I love that too. There are people though that do not like surprises. Like it pisses them off because they weren't able to prepare. I'm not wearing the right thing. I didn't know this. Y'all didn't know I have to be somewhere. Like, Well, the answer to that is that you should always be dressed 
ready for a surprise. That's my, my mom used to always say, have your passport ready because you never know when a man's going to want to whisk you away to Paris. So, you know, if you want to be prepared. Oh my God, Mama Patrick, yes, I'm stealing that. CC Celeste is, is got good advice. And I've always had my passport up to date and right in my bedside drawer. But no, I do know people like literally Leah, you know, Leah, my friend, yeah. lovely best friend. She cannot handle not knowing the end of a book. So she'll read the end before she starts the book, which I find <laughs> insufferable. Like I just can't, like, that's the whole point that you're going to get there eventually. It's the journey. But you know, maybe I am more like Johnny. I don't want spoilers, but I do want surprises. Yeah. Well, this was such an informative and just really heartfelt podcast today. And, you know, his sobriety is clearly so important to him. And I hope someone listening that if you're struggling with addiction or any kind of thing that actually is rooted in trauma, listen to some of the things Johnny said today and go and check out some of the people that he recommended. Yeah, I'm going to put Louise Hay in the show notes because I want to go check yeah. her out. And I think that it's you know, he's, he's clearly done some homework. Yeah. That's the only reason he agreed to this podcast because he said, if my story can help one person, then I'm not, it's great. Well, that's a, Yeah. I mean, we have that in common with them. We're just yeah. here to help y'all. We <laughs> help not hurt exactly. and hopefully stop the cycle for everybody out there so that we can live in a more joyful and harmonious world. So love that. Love that little button. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just feeling good and butterflies and rainbows today. Well, I hope you have a great uh, rest of your Sunday, and I hope you have a great week ahead. It was always a pleasure yes, seeing you. Yes, you too, Bill. It was lovely to see you, and I will see you next week. Bye. All right, bye. Bye.